0: Open your Bibles to the, the book of Habakkuk. I forgot to look at what page it is, but it's easy to find. It's right between Nahum and Zephaniah. <laughs> Seeing you guys going right to it. Go to the end of the Old Testament and work your way back a little ways, and you'll find Habakkuk. Keep your hands raised. and Yeah, great. So, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Um, now, that can be a little bit tricky, because they're called minor doesn't mean they're unimportant they are every bit as important as the major prophets the reason they're called minor is because they're very brief in fact if you take all 12 of the minor prophets and put them together it would about equal the book of isaiah in fact in in the old testament time that was called the book of the 12 uh they, they actually put them all the scrolls together into one scroll so they wouldn't lose them they were so short So they're minor because they're short or brief and not because they're unimportant. They have a tremendous amount to say to us today. And I believe that Habakkuk has an awful lot to say to us as well. So Habakkuk is believed to have lived in the seventh century BC, kind of towards the end of it, as as a contemporary of Jeremiah before the invasion of the Babylonians, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the taking of the people uh, into exile. So it's likely that he grew up during the reign of King Josiah, and he was able to witness many of, or if not all, of the reforms that Josiah put in place during his reign as king of Judah. Well, unfortunately, uh, Josiah was the last really good king of Judah. Um, The ones that followed him were evil, evil men. So that when Josiah died, all of those reforms that he had put in place died with him. In fact, there, after his death and before the destruction of Jerusalem, there was virtually no godliness anywhere within the nation of Judah. In fact, Jeremiah, again a contemporary of Habakkuk, wrote these words in his 22nd chapter, verse 17, speaking of Jerusalem at that time he said but you are always thinking and looking for ways to increase your holding by dishonest means your eyes and your heart are set only on killing some innocent person and on committing fraud and oppression see the old testament doesn't tell us anything more about Habakkuk but we do know that he lived during a very evil time in the history of Judah We also do know, too, as well, that he was quoted four times in the New Testament. He was quoted in the book of Acts, Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews. Now, I want us to look at at verse 1. There's three very important things for us to see just right here in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. First, I want to look at his name, Habakkuk. It comes from the form of the Hebrew word to embrace, but it isn't a hug. It's, it's like a, a, a wrestler kind of grappling with his opponent. Think of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at, at Bethel. This book is about a prophet who lived out his name by wrestling with God. And when we meet him, he's on the mat, and he's just hoping for the bell to reign. Now, also we see here that this is an oracle. That word that is translated oracle here in Habakkuk is used a number of times in the Old Testament and most of the other times that it's used it's translated burden. It's the Hebrew word masa. And typically if a prophet is receiving a, a very difficult Message, then that word Masa is used, and it's usually then a message of judgment and doom. So this could easily start out by saying the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, Masa is like having to tell someone that you really care about very bad news, knowing that if you tell them, It's going to cause them very great grief. You you just don't want to do it, but you know that you have to. I had a friend, uh, I have a friend, who was a Marine Corps captain in Vietnam. And after uh, he left Vietnam and came back to the United States and before he was discharged, one of his responsibilities was to go to the families of soldiers who lost their lives and to tell the families what had happened. That, that's, that's masa. That's the kind of burden that Habakkuk was carrying. And it, it was a, a burden that he had to continue to carry throughout his ministry. The third thing I want us to see in that first verse is that God helped Habakkuk carry that burden. And he did it by not just speaking to him but by showing him. Habakkuk literally saw what was going to happen in this particular revelation. Oftentimes, if the message is very difficult, God's prophets not only heard truth from God, but they saw it in visions and in dreams. And what Habakkuk saw was the sudden and savage destruction and death of the people that he loved. And Habakkuk's burden was that he knew what was going to happen, and he had to communicate it to the people that it was going to happen to. Prophet Jeremiah compared being a prophet to having a fire burning inside. These guys had a a very tough job, and, and Habakkuk was no exception. Now, what he is an exception of is pretty much how uh, the prophet uh, communicated to us. As we read the other prophets, virtually all of them, it was them hearing from God a particular message for his people at that time and then communicating that message to them. And we would be able to see how the prophet would go and tell the people what was happening. Uh, That was true in almost every case, even even Jonah. Jonah's responsibility was not to bring a message necessarily to the people of Israel, but to Assyria. Uh, Obadiah was responsible to bring a message to Edom. Nahum was bringing a message about Assyria as well. But for Habakkuk, we get to listen in to a conversation between he and God. And then we get to see how Habakkuk responds to what God has to tell him. So it's different than the others. Let me read now for you from verses 2 through 11. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then God answers him, says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. So according to verse 2, Habakkuk has been going to God for a long time. He has been witnessing or hearing about One atrocity after another. And he's wondering if God is going to do anything about the evil situation in the land of Canaan. God's people are increasingly becoming more and more wicked. And Habakkuk can't stand what's going on. But it seems like God is tolerating it. Habakkuk can't reconcile what he knows about a sin-hating God who expelled prideful, rebellious angels from heaven. A A God who destroyed the entire earth in Noah's day because of rampant sin. A God who rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah is now tolerating the same kind of activity in his own land. It just didn't make sense to Habakkuk. He wanted an answer. Can't you relate to him? I mean, we look around today. We see tens of thousands of unborn babies slaughtered. We see suicide bombings, human trafficking, school shootings. Just the other day, A couple on their way to deliver their first baby are killed by a hit and run driver who's intoxicated? Don't you want to cry out just like Habakkuk and say, How long, oh God? Don't you want to cry out, God, why don't you do something? Why is there so much injustice? Why isn't there revival? Why are our loved ones not being healed? Where is the justice? Why? Why doesn't God answer our prayers when they seem to be exactly in line with his character? Well, when we feel that way, and let's be honest, who, who hasn't? we need to see Habakkuk's example. You see, although he was distressed, he doesn't abandon his relationship with God. Instead, he keeps going to him. He keeps questioning him with the kind of candor that is critical to any relationship. So the first thing I want us to see from this first section of Habakkuk is that when we don't understand what's happening around us It's okay to question God. See, even though it was a long time, and even though things were getting worse, Habakkuk doesn't give up. He continues to go to God. He continues to pray honestly and passionately as he lays out his concerns and his confusion before God. And when God finally does answer, he doesn't rebuke Habakkuk, for coming to him. You see, because Habakkuk doesn't cry against God. He cries out to God. His prayer is not a prayer of anger. It's a prayer of anguish. And you know what? For us, I think oftentimes our prayers are just too sterile. We don't release the passion and the confusion and the concern that's building up inside us. And we need to see Habakkuk's example and respond. Jerry Bridges, the the man who was the compiler of the message in his introduction to the Psalms, says this. He says, the book of Psalms is the utterances of men and women passionate for God in moments of anger and praise and lament. Only as we develop raw honesty and detailed thoroughness in our praying do we become truly human in Christ. We can't help but be confused by the things that are going on around us. We need to cry out to God. We need to share our concerns. But like Habakkuk, we need to recognize that our God loves us enough to receive those prayers of anguish and so to be honest with him. Now, What's also important, of course, when we're speaking to God, we're speaking to the king, creator of the universe. It must be done in in awe and in reverence of who he is. In fact, when we bring our honest concerns and questions to God, we need to surrender our preferences to his wisdom. Just as Jesus did at Gethsemane when he said, not your will be done, Lord, not my will be done, Lord, but your will. So when we cry out honestly and openly to God, we do it in reverence, in fear, and we do it making sure that we understand that his wisdom is greater than our preferences. And what's so interesting here is when God finally does answer Habakkuk, his answer is even more mysterious than the fact that he hadn't answered him. So the second thing I want us to see in this section of Habakkuk is that God will answer, but his answer may be radically different than what we expect. So first, God lets Habakkuk know that he's simply looking in the wrong place. In verse 3, Habakkuk says, Why do you make me see and why do you look upon all of this? Well, God takes those exact same verbs in verse 5 and turns them back around on Habakkuk. And in verse 5, he says, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. See, what God is saying is, I see what you're looking at, Habakkuk. I know what you see, but you're focused just on your little kingdom. And he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to let you lift your eyes. I'm going to let you see my power. And by authority, I'm going to do something that's really worth looking at. In fact, it's unbelievable. See, because Habakkuk didn't see any let up in the evil that was happening in his country. He assumed that God was not doing anything. But in fact, God was moving and God was working. And what God did for Habakkuk is he, he pulled back the curtain of his sovereign plans and he let Habakkuk see that he is the God of all nations, not just Judah. And he's showing him that every nation on the planet, even the most vicious, are under his control. And he's showing him one other thing that I think is so important for us and that is that things aren't always the way they appear that what our eyes see are not always the whole story see Habakkuk couldn't possibly know that God was raising up these Chaldeans these Babylonians to use them to come and attack Judah so he tells Habakkuk you wouldn't believe this even if you were told why not? because those Babylonians are really, really bad. He, he takes six out of those 11 verses to describe just what an evil group these Chaldeans or Babylonians really are. He says that they are bitter, hostile, ruthless, cold-blooded. And then he says, this is going to happen. I'm the one that's behind it. And despite the fact of their evil, I'm going to use them anyway. What's so unbelievable about this in the context of history is that at that point in world history, the Babylonians were virtually unknown. At that time, the Assyrians were the major power on the planet, followed by the Egyptians. But in 614 BC, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians in a major battle. And then two years later, in 612 BC, the Babylonians actually attacked and overwhelmed Nineveh and basically destroyed the nation of Assyria. And their power continued to grow, and they continued to win battle after battle until 605 BC, the most famous battle in the history of the world up to that point. Pharaoh Necho from Egypt met Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar at Carchemish. And at that battle, the Babylonians wiped out the Egyptian power and became the most feared and powerful nation on the planet. From nowhere to the most feared nation in the world that day. And as their power grew, so did their atrocities. Habakkuk had received his answer from God, and it literally blew his mind. God was going to deal with the sin of his people, but he was going to do it using evil people, more evil than the Jews themselves, and horrible circumstances in order to do it. God was accomplishing his purposes by causing things to get worse before they get better. And you know what? He does that in our lives sometimes as well. What does that mean? That means we need to be prepared for God to do the unexpected in our lives. And he, he doesn't do it to keep us off balance or to confuse us. It's simply because God's ways of working are so infinite that our feeble minds couldn't possibly grasp all of the possibilities. But he will do things in unexpected ways. So when things seem to be spinning out of control for us, or when we don't receive the answers that we expect from God, We have a choice. We can either abandon God, turn away from Him, turn away from the church, run away, look to some other source of comfort and strength, or we can remember that God is sovereign and in control and uses unexpected things in unexpected ways. To accomplish his purposes. You know, we so often mistake our pain for God's inactivity. But what we must remember is that God uses our pain to accomplish his purposes. Someone once said that storms can't shipwreck the gospel, they propel it forward. That's true in our lives, too. God uses those storms of life to propel us forward, to help us to grow in our understanding that he is in control and to trust him, to recognize that we're dependent people and to be able to watch him accomplish his purposes in unexpected ways. God wants to show us in the midst of our crises of life not to have tunnel vision, not to just look at our own circumstances, but to have a bigger perspective, a kingdom perspective. God is the king. He is in charge of all things in all places. And his ways are different, but they're always best. So in the storms of our life or the storms that we see around us, As we watch the news and and live in this broken, battered world, we need to remember that we can go to God, ask him, help us. And we need to remember that he'll answer and use unexpected things and do it in unexpected ways. But the third thing I want us to see is that God's timing is also very different than what we expect. Um, The vision that God gave to Habakkuk happened somewhere between 606 and 609 BC. Well, the final invasion and destruction of Jerusalem didn't happen until 586. Twenty years Habakkuk carried that burden. And then when God did finally do what he said he would do, it was truly a disaster. Jerusalem was ravaged. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Thousands of people were killed. And those who survived were taken into exile. Just what Habakkuk saw. But God, who does things in unexpected ways, during that period of exile, raised up a man like Daniel who demonstrated how to live a godly life in the midst of a pagan nation. He raised up a man like Ezra, who brought back the authority and the remembrance of God's law as a scribe. He brought out a man like Nehemiah, who showed us how to live and be a godly leader. And then during the exile, the people of Israel became disenchanted with their idols, and they turned back to God in repentance. And as a result, he brought them out of exile and back to the promised land. What we saw is that God does judge sin. There are consequences for sin, but he also protected a remnant of his people just like he promised he would. And out of that storm, out of that tragedy, out of that disaster, God restored the nation back to their land and they were able to rebuild The temple. And that very temple was the temple that Jesus himself read from the book of Isaiah. See, there have been lots of storms described in scripture that seemed to be tragedies. And although they were very difficult situations, God used them in unexpected ways. You take a man like Joseph. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob and the most outstanding of all of them. And because Jacob favored Joseph, his brothers in jealousy sell him into slavery. Joseph's burden is that for 13 years, he lived knowing that the vision that God had shown him earlier was going to come true. But he suffered as a slave and a prisoner for 13 long years. A tragedy. And then when there was a famine in the land and Joseph's brothers showed up and when they recognized and realized that it was Joseph who was now in charge of all of Egypt because after those 13 years, Pharaoh brought him out, of prison and raised him up to the second most powerful man in the entire country, when they saw Joseph and they expected him to take out vengeance upon them, to get revenge against them, Joseph, because he had a bigger perspective, he had a kingdom perspective on his suffering, said in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the salvation of many. In, in the early church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 8, um, we're told that the, the, the believers are all kind of huddled together. They are, they are sharing everything. They are growing. They are really do, having a wonderful time. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, this church is doing great. Everything's going wonderfully. They are just enjoying each other and growing. And then a great persecution. It wasn't just, oh, they were being made fun of. This was running for your life. Great persecution, great tragedy here's what happened in verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went see had that had that persecution not come upon them they would have just stayed in israel who wouldn't everything was going great they would have been right there in that little jerusalem church loving on each other and then god brought in a great persecution and as a result the gospel was advanced storms don't shipwreck the gospel they propel it forward but you have to have a kingdom perspective to see it. Paul cites a couple of examples uh, in his own life where God worked in unexpected ways and took what seemed to be a disaster and turned it around for the advancement of the gospel. And In Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 12, he says, It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Well, why did it become clear to the palace guard that he was in chains for Christ? He was in prison. Paul was in prison. But yet, the palace guard, these elite imperial soldiers who would have had no opportunity to hear the gospel, there was no way that those Roman Christians were going to have access to this elite group of guards. But because Paul was arrested... He got to preach the gospel to those who were previously unreachable. And what's so ironic about it is that they were, the, Paul's opponents who put him in prison, did it to keep him quiet, to stop him from preaching the gospel. But his imprisonment served only to advance the gospel. Storms do not shipwreck the gospel, they propel it forward. And then the second thing that happened as a result of Paul's imprisonment was, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fiercely. Because of Paul's imprisonment, that little Roman church, that church that just kind of got started, that Paul was longing to come and see, now because of Paul's imprisonment, not in spite of it, but because of it, they were emboldened, encouraged to preach fearlessly and courageously. It's it's so interesting because Paul always wanted to visit Rome. Right in the very first chapter of his letter to the Roman church, in in chapter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, I pray now that at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He didn't realize he'd go as a prisoner. He wanted to go and he wanted to preach in their church. He wanted to have a a men's Bible study and and a woman's Bible study and really encourage their faith by being there with him. And I can imagine that the Roman Christians were excited about Paul's coming, Paul's coming. And there he came over the hill in chains, Right by the church and right directly into prison. Shocking. And yet, God used it to allow them to preach the gospel more courageously and fearlessly. A gospel propelled forward again by seeming disaster. Even Paul is surprised by the unexpected ways that God works. God is weaving a bigger story than what we can see. And the biggest story of all, of course, is that God used Roman authorities and Jewish religious leaders working together to crucify the Son of God. The most terrible crime in human history Yet God used that horrific cruelty to defeat sin and death and to bring salvation to his people. See, no matter what's going on, or whom the Lord uses, or when he does it, we must remember that he is in control and that he is making certain that his will is being accomplished and that will is that he redeem a people and that he make himself known. And the fourth thing, the last thing I want us to see this morning is that God invites us to join him in that mission of redeeming a people and making himself known. And we can do that most effectively by how we respond to the storms and difficult circumstances of life. James said it this way, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. See, I think that's the answer. Can we respond with joy in the midst of those trials? I have to believe that the reason that the palace guard were willing to listen to Paul in the midst of his chains was because of his joy and Christlikeness in the midst of prison. I have to believe that the reason why the Roman Christians were encouraged to share the gospel with Paul in prison was because of his joy and Christlikeness while he was in chains. For Joseph, Joseph, whose exemplary life and attitude as a slave in Potiphar's home, as a a prisoner in Potiphar's dungeon, and before Pharaoh, his life, despite his trials, was so exemplary that each one of them saw that God The king, creator of the universe, was with him. And Joseph, by his attitude and joy in the midst of trials, made the invisible God visible. We can do the same. But we have to have a kingdom perspective. We have to be able to trust that God is in control and that everything that happens is part of his sovereign plan and in his sovereign timing. So when we see injustice and we see evil and when we face the storms of life, certainly we're going to to stumble. We're going to wonder. We're even going to wrestle with God. But we have to take a step back and we have to recognize that he is in control and that he is using unexpected ways, unexpected instruments in unusual timing to accomplish his purposes. See, he gave Habakkuk a vision so he could see what was going to happen. God gives us his word so that we can see what has happened and even what will happen and be encouraged to believe that he is working right now in the midst of your storm See, because just as he was working in Joseph's time and just as he was working in Habakkuk's time and in Paul's time, God is working today in our time. And he has a plan that is bigger than what we can see. And he has a plan that can use us in the midst of those trials and storms of life. See, every one of us, every one of us has or will have a burden to carry. The question as we wrestle with that burden is not, is God working? God is working, God is always working. He may be using unusual tools at different times and unexpected ways, but he is working. Now the question is, will we respond in faith, believing that God really is in control, believing that he really does have all of history in his hand, believing that Everything that happens, good and bad, is accomplishing his purpose for our good and his glory. When we do, then God will use our joy in the midst of those trials to advance the gospel, to demonstrate God's love and goodness to those around us. Now, you may be here this morning, and you are carrying right now the ultimate burden, the burden of your sin. You are holding on to your own ability to deal with that. And you know what? God says, I'm not just going to help you carry that burden. I want to carry that burden for you. In Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 40, Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And he's speaking to Gentile unbelievers. And, And he says, quoting Habakkuk, he said, God is going to do something in your day that is absolutely unbelievable. You wouldn't believe it even if you saw it. And he's talking about how God ultimately dealt with sin. That God himself took our judgment and our unrighteousness upon himself, upon Jesus, the son of God. That God is willing to carry that burden. That Jesus took it. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So if you are carrying that burden yourself, would you simply believe that you can't solve the problem? And that because God is a holy and just God, he must judge that sin. And rather than carry that burden yourself, would you just lay it at the feet of the cross? Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, your savior, your rescuer, and let that burden go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your ultimate control of all of history. That you are working to accomplish your purpose to redeem a people and make yourself known and that you allow us to participate in that. I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would respond to you in joy, despite our circumstances, believing that you're using all things for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name.